What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we discuss and analyze pop culture, history, mythology, philosophy, and everything that we love to talk about. As always, I'm very excited to be here today, and I'm excited. I'm so excited. Today, we are going to be celebrating episode 100 our 100th episode of the Midnight Night Myth, Myth podcast. podcast. It's such a milestone and it's so exciting. And of course, uh, if you look at our feed, you'll know that we have more than 100 installments in there. But there have been some bonuses, some boomerangerangs. This is the official episode 100, the 100th story that we have taken a look at and analyzed for its universal themes. So a huge milestone and we thank you so much for being with us a couple of announcements before we begin oh okay one of those announcements is that finally coinciding with episode 100 if you head to www.midnightmyth.com you'll see a new tab on our website and that is the shop we are finally launching our merch store so if you have been wondering how you can sport the midnight myth logo or funny little things that you can show your support for the podcast and tell everyone how much you love us, you finally can do that. Uh, So we have t-shirts for sale, we have a couple of tote bags, and we'll be adding more products as time goes on. We have logo t-shirts, we have some fun lists that say history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture, we have a boomerangerang t-shirt, and we have t-shirts that uh, promote the Wheel of Ka, our Dark Tower podcast. So a little bit of everything, something for everyone, And I hope you'll check it out, midnightmyth.com, hit shop. And if you get any of our merch and you are of the first hundred people to tweet at us with the picture of your merch, we promise to mention you on the podcast. Absolutely. And we'll certainly retweet or uh, repost as we go. So that leads me to saying if you wanted to connect with us in any way, social media is the best way to do it. Uh, please hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, or on Facebook. Uh, Like I said, head over to our website for more content there, www.midnightmyth.com for blogs and more information. Um, And 
And we have a newsletter coming. We have a newsletter coming. So if you have not yet signed up, make sure you head over to that same website, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and drop your email in there. We won't email you a lot, maybe once a month, just to keep you apprised of any updates, our new episodes, and just keep you up to date with any goings on here at The Midnight Myth. And other news, most of you listening listen through iTunes or Stitcher. We realize that we have an issue where a lot of our back catalog is not on those feeds. A, they're on the website. B, we're working on a solution to get those into your feeds. That is coming shortly. Tons of news to start it off. I would just want to say something really quick. Most of our listeners have been with us for a while, have jumped on early. Plenty of you have jumped on since episode one. The 100th episode wouldn't be here without you. Laurel and I have a very busy, very complex life where we have careers, we're homeowners, we have family and friends. And the thing that, and cats, you know, to snuggle with. And the thing that keeps us doing this podcast is the amount of listeners that we have, the amount of listeners that have given us a review, that have given us a tweet who've dropped us a line on the website, who will hopefully now buy some merch to help us give you even more content. Like, honestly, I can't thank you listeners enough. You are fantastic. This 100th episode is for you. Yeah. So without further ado. This is our episode. So for episode 100, we wanted to go back to the roots. When we started the Midnight Myth podcast, we weren't really sure what it would be and where it would go. And we've learned a lot. We've tweaked our formula. But episode one, Laurel and I each took a different villain and we analyzed and discussed that villain. We wanted to call back to episode one, but do it in more in how the show is formatted now, where we take a central idea or a thesis and we work it through different works of art, or we take a work of art and find its central thesis and we connect it to other works of arts that might have preceded it. So we are going to be discussing magicians, wizards, and magic users. This is episode 100, Wizardry. In particular of interest, we want to examine three wizards through storytelling. We can't really discuss wizards without discussing the wizard, Merlin, who is the original wizard. We then want to draw connections between Merlin to more contemporary modern wizards in Gandalf and in Dumbledore. Gandalf being from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Dumbledore from Harry Potter. I assume you all know that, but I just, in the interest of being thorough, I wanted to make sure. Of course. And the idea is we're going to be discussing why wizards, what are the role, why the magician, why is this a prevalent theme in storytelling? Why does it date so far back from Merlin up until today? How does it get from the Dark Ages to contemporary storytelling? What's the fucking deal with wizards? What's the deal with wizards? So to kick things off, I'd love to start with a little bit of a personal story just to explain uh, Please. why this is important to me. Uh, when I was a preteen, I was probably like 12 or 13 years old, Uh, I had the opportunity with my church group of all things to give a parable at my church. So every sermon, every uh, Sunday service, someone would come up and tell a story from either the Bible or from another faith. I went to a sort of interfaith church and my youth group got the opportunity to do it one Sunday. 
And at this point in my life, I was very obsessed with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And I was very, I had my interest piqued by the similarities between them. And I at no point thought, you know, J.K. Rowling is just copying J.R.R. Tolkien. But I had this sense that there was something deeper going on within the connections between the characters and the storylines. And so I pitched to my group and they said, yeah, let's do it. Let's get up and talk about how fantasy franchises are connected to each other. Let's talk about the similarities uh, and the differences between the characters and the plots that we see through major fantasy stories, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and so on. And that, I think, was the moment that the Midnight Myth was born within me. I got up and got to give a presentation to a bunch of people older than me and say, hey, have you ever noticed how a lot of stories follow the same beats? And someone who was in the audience that day, someone who was in church, was like, you should check out The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. And I watched this PBS series where Bill Moyers interviewed Joseph Campbell about the hero's journey and how Star Wars is exemplary of it. And I can pinpoint that moment in my life as the moment that the universal themes that resound through storytelling started to become something that was more important to me than anything. And that was born out of tracking Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. So I'm very excited to get to do this tonight and to talk about their roots in another story that I love, which is the Arthurian legend, and see what we can learn from what sometimes looks like a carbon copy, but if you look close, is really an evolution of an archetype. Great. Yeah, really excited to talk about it. Thank you for sharing that personal story. I have a few particular lenses that I approached this subject tonight. Um, in particular, I want to call out two source two sources that have been instrumental in my study of the similarities and universalities of different storytelling, mythology, and religious ritual and cult ritual. You mentioned one of them, Joseph Campbell, who wrote A Hero with a Thousand Faces, who discussed the hero's journey. And one of the facets of that is the interaction with the mentor or the, the supernatural aid, the, the aid along that, which I think is often shaped and formed as the magician or the wizard. The other is, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the people that wrote it. Two people wrote it. One's named Gillette. Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. And Douglas Gillette, thank you, who wrote uh, King, Magician, Warrior, Lover. I might have gotten that mixed up in I terms think of the order. King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. But they talk about these different four archetypes of male psyche and how that these archetypes have formed different aspects of manhood and what it means to be a man in the world and applying both of those archetypal uh sort of psychoanalytical and Jungian lenses to the subject matter today. And it's important to note that even Campbell says this in Here with a Thousand Faces in its introduction, if I remember correctly, that when discussing the universality of a theme or an archetype, it's important to note an equal study could be done on the dissimilarities and the ununiversalness. Yeah. So I say this as a caution to remind ourselves that these are not monolithic or dogmatic truths, but rather one particular lens that we can look at the problem of why wizards? What's the deal with wizards? And along the way, hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about ourselves. 
As we often do. Let's uh, let's dive right in. Laurel, you are the King Arthur expert on the show, as in I am the Roman history expert. You flatter me, sir. Would you like to kick our discussion off around Merlin? I absolutely would. I think it's the right place to begin since he's kind of the granddaddy of the modern tradition of wizards. Uh, And to start, I'd want to highlight a little bit of the backstory and the creation of Merlin as a character within the Arthurian legend. Do it. So... Merlin is based on a potentially real 5th or 6th century bard named Mirvin. Uh, He's also called Mirvin the Wild. This was a warrior bard who served a petty king in modern-day Wales or Scotland, somewhere on the British Isles. Was he really vindictive against his enemies and, like, little small things would get him really offended? Because he was Oh, he's so petty. petty. I that just was a terrible a, joke. A lesser king. He was not the high king of Britain that you would think of when you think of Arthur uniting and, small kingdoms. And that's the moment Derek lost half the audience. And that's the moment that everyone switched it off. Um, so he serves one of these lesser kings. And the king that he served went to war with another lesser king and lost. So Mirvin ends up witnessing the death of his king and possibly lots of his friends and family. He loses his mind tears off all of his clothes and runs into the Caledonian forests and becomes a wild man. Now, the wild man is a very common trope in medieval literature. We're going to see it more in the Arthurian stories when we think of the knights Yvain, Lancelot even, and Tristan sort of conform to this trope. Uh, But they're sort of like hermits who will run off into the woods and grow a connection with nature, these sort of liminal figures who can speak to animals or birds and maybe channel the trees and the spirits of nature. It honestly calls to mind uh, a figure from Lord of the Rings known as Radagast the Brown, who is another wizard uh, in Gandalf's order, who you see, especially in the Hobbit movies, is kind of running around the forest like a a fool talking to the birds and things. Uh, So while he's off being mad in the woods... Mervyn gains the power of prophecy. Now, the man who enfolds this story into the Arthurian legend is a guy we've talked about before, Geoffrey of Monmouth. If you've listened to our King Arthur episode, you know, this is the uh, guy who made King Arthur burst onto the scene uh, with Historia Regum Britanniae, which is a pseudo-historical Latin text. Now, there's a fun fact about the uh, inclusion of, of Merlin in this text is This Mervyn, the Welsh version of his name, is spelled M-Y-R-D-D-I-N. And when Geoffrey is composing this, it's uh, in the 12th century. It's not long after uh, the Norman conquest. So many people speak a dialect of French known as Anglo-Norman. And if he had Latinized it as it normally would be, it would be spelled M-E-R-D-I-N-U-S, which if you speak any French, you know that that basically translates to shitty the bard. Merd meaning shit. Pardon my French. So (laughs) Jeffrey's like, I'm not going to have shitty the bard running around the forest, so we're going to make it Merlin or Merlinus. And that's how we end up with the contemporary uh, Merlin name instead of Merlin. Great, great (laughs) little uh, uh, detail right there. It's a really fun little detail. Um, So then a 13th century French writer, Robert de Bohan, is going to flesh out the backstory. He's the guy who's going to introduce us to the sort of ambiguous morals or religious alignment of Merlin. 
uh, and have him be born of a virgin and an incubus, uh, a male demon. So he's sort of an antichrist figure. But then, as soon as he pops out of the womb, he's baptized. So he always straddles this line between pure good and pure evil. And that's going to give us a really interesting liminal figure here. Now, as we know him uh, in the uh, Arthurian legend from several versions down the road, we probably remember him as the guy who bewitches Uther Pendragon, the father of Arthur, to look like the Duke of Cornwall, Gorlois, in order to be able to sleep with Lady Igraine and Father Arthur. And then we know him as the guy who sets up Arthur's court and helps him to establish the Knights of the Round Table and the Kingdom of Camelot. But there are two really divergent narrative arcs that this character will take in different versions of the story. One, which Robert de Boron gives us, uh, is a character who uh, stays with Arthur throughout his reign. He is an advisor, a general at times, and someone who is constantly at Arthur's side. And then there's what Geoffrey gives us, there's what Mallory gives us, there's what many uh, contemporary authors, and I would say is, is the more um, common, frequently adapted version, where Merlin is there at the beginning, fosters Arthur and takes him to Sir Ector, is responsible for his conception, is responsible for helping him set up Camelot, and then he disappears, essentially. He takes a step back, usually because he's been imprisoned in an oak or a cave by a character named Ninian or Vivian or Nimue, usually a version of the Lady of the Lake. But he conspicuously becomes absent from the narrative, and Arthur has to learn how to rule on his own. And I think this version is an interesting way in to understand the other two wizards we're going to talk about tonight, who have a role in shaping the uh, destinies of the main characters, of the heroes, but usually are not present for their entire narrative. Usually have to walk them across the threshold and then take a step back on their own. I think you touched on an important aspect of understanding archetypical magicianry and wizardry. I don't know if those are right words. <laughs> those are great. And I think what you touched on in particular with the more commonly adapted version of Merlin towards the later years, that Merlin helps establish King Arthur's presence. He was, in fact, helped establish King Arthur's birth, yeah. securing the fact that King Arthur would come into the world, and then helps establish King Arthur as the king in the drawing of the sword from the stone or the Lady of the Lake or whatever version that you have, and then establishes the court at Camelot and then poof, disappears. Yeah. And what I think is instrumental and instructive of understanding the archetype of the wizard, that the wizard's job in a narrative sense, Merlin's job in a narrative sense, is to help usher out and bring change. In other words, it is the person that, A, has knowledge that others don't have. Whether that knowledge is understand in the terms of magic, literal spells, whether that knowledge is in terms of history, the way that Gandalf understands history, whether that knowledge is in terms of experience, like I fought the Dark Lord in Voldemort before, and or whether that knowledge is inherently magical. I can do things that others can't do, and I'm really great at doing these things, that they need a way and a conduit to pass that knowledge on to the hero. 
And the way they do that is through processes of initiation. Mm, yeah. And I think the the more psychoanalytical view to it is that anytime that you are, you said the word crossing the threshold. Yeah. I can't just determine arbitrarily as a person where that threshold is. It needs to be determined for me. Let me give you a pragmatic real life example we all know. I am 18. I've accumulated 18 years of education. I have exceeded or I've at least met the bar uh, imposed upon me by general academic standards. And I have to walk across a stage, be handed a piece of paper by a head or an important person of that institution who is older than me to say, here it is. You have now crossed the threshold and you are now initiated out of the uneducated to the educated. The educator in this is the archetype of the wizard, is the magician. It's the person that can determine where that threshold exists, how you cross that threshold, and their job is to get you from one side of the threshold to the other. Yeah, and once you get to the other side, you are kind of on your own, because that's the point of this figure, right, is to endow you with the necessary skills and knowledge and understanding to bring you out of childhood into adulthood, uh, to bring you onto the other side where you're prepared to take care of yourself. Absolutely. And in ancient cultures, these would often be priests or, or priestesses, or, yeah, or some sort of a, a figure that has a spiritual purpose, who understands the language and the, ne- and, the, and the words of the deities, can translate them, and then help you cross that threshold. It's the same in terms of marriage ritual. When you get married, you have someone with the authority to say, you have started one way, and at the end, you are now this way. You have started sing- single, and now you are a married couple. You are no longer two units, you are one. Right. By virtue of crossing this altar, this threshold. This is the headspace in which and the psychic space in which the Merlin exists in the later adapted versions of King Arthur. What I find also instructive and also just downright fucking fun is that it started with shit bard. Yeah, I do love that very much. But that that just pinged something for me. Uh, there's a, a really well-known uh, contemporary adaptation of the Arthurian legend called The Once and Future King, written by T.H. White. Uh, part of it was adapted into Disney's The Sword and the Stone. And T.H. White identified a way to uh, sort of manifest Merlin as both a keeper of histories and a seer of prophecies. And he invented the sort of uh, convention of Merlin aging backwards. So he has already seen everything that is to come and takes history of the future and sees prophecy of the past. But there is this, um, this relationship, I think, between that version of Merlin, who is both historian and prophet, and the person who guides you across the threshold, right? So they are the kind of person who... Uh, could achieve great things on their own if they chose ego over uh, helping others, but they've chosen to be ferrymen, right? They've chosen to stand at the threshold, take someone's hand on one side of it, the past, and guide them to the other side, the future. And I think there's another lens that we can also interpret this, in particular in its spiritual sense, Yeah, is that it, that threshold is often from death to life to death. 
that there is a cycle then back into life, that there is a cycle by which these things happen. I think the Arthurian legend, as we know it in particular from the more high middle ages, so thinking like 11th, 12th, 13th century languages, is that you know, there is a time in which there is an ascendancy of England. It was brought about by the military and just might of King Arthur, who wouldn't exist exist if Merlin hadn't made him so, and that that time died, and we are waiting for it to be reborn yeah, again. once and future king, yeah. If you'll permit me, I'd like to turn this lens to Gandalf. Yes, please. Um, and what I'd like to discuss in Gandalf, I want to be a, be a little granular and a little specific. Great. So I'd like to talk about the Fellowship of the Ring. I'd like to talk about the first installment of the Lord of the Rings, and I'd like to talk about the very beginning of the book and the beginning of the movie. Okay. Where Gandalf is going to Bilbo Baggins's hundredth and eleventh birthday to celebrate the birthday. Bilbo is planning on giving Bag End to Frodo, and he's planning on retiring with the elves and just going on his last adventure and finally finishing his book. There are a few major um, symbolic elements I'd like to pick out of that. So one, a 100th and 11th birthday, it's my 11th one birthday, I think they call 11th it. 11th, yeah. 11th birthday is a significant birthday in Hobbit culture. It is a rite of passage. It is you have made it to 111. It's like when we say you're 40, you're over the hill. But 111st is a huge deal in the Hobbits. So we have a rite of passage from sort of middle age and old age into twilight age. Yeah, okay, great. So you've now passed this gulf and you do so with a humongous celebration. We have Gandalf coming as the initiate to transfer uh, and and be witness to and mentor Bilbo through his threshold of the uh, 111th birthday. At the party, Bilbo puts on the ring to the you know chagrin and confusion of all the hobbits as a joke, and we get this very interesting scene where Bilbo and Gandalf have a discussion about what he should do with the ring. Gandalf is upset that Bilbo has used the ring lightly, and then Gandalf says, hey, by the way, is this ring staying? Frodo's, or Bilbo, pardon me, is like, yeah, of course it's staying. It's over there in the, no, it's not. It's here in my pocket. Oh, it's so good. And why shouldn't I keep it? It culminates with Gandalf using magic, which he rarely uses magic at all, to tell Bilbo, I am not here to rob you. I'm here to help you. Trust me, let the ring go. Bilbo finally drops the ring and leaves and leaves it to Frodo. Under this lens of the magician's job is to initiate the transfer through the threshold, we can say that, one, what is the ring doing to Bilbo other than uh, giving him the ability to be invisible? It's extending his life. It grants the wearer um, eternal youth. You do not age. In fact, when Gandalf sees him, he says, you haven't aged. Despite the fact that Bilbo says he feels like too little butter being spread over too much bread. Despite that he feels old, he knows that he is unnaturally youthful because of the ring. By Gandalf convincing Bilbo to abandon the ring, he is ushering him truly, this is the initiation, out of your middle old age into your acceptance of death. And what does Bilbo say? I thought of an end. He lived happily ever after till the end of his days. 
pinpointing that he has given up his eternal youth and accepting peacefully, yeah, peacefully, gracefully accepting that he is at the end of his life and it is now time for Frodo to take over Bag End and take his rightful place as the protagonist of this narrative. Mm. None of this is possible without Gandalf being the initiate, being the person with the knowledge and the skills that the other characters don't have, being the person with the will to act on it, and being the person that's willing to usher them from point one to point B. So we have two phases of initiation. One, the birthday party. The birthday party is societal. It is structural. It is somewhat arbitrary. Why 111? Why not 112? Why not, you know, 99? 100, yeah. Yeah, what what makes this one in particularly special? It's just Hobbit culture. And so it's celebrated. And Bilbo makes a farce of it. He mocks it. He doesn't respect it. He's doing it just to get under the skin of hobbits and just have hobbits talking about him for generations to come. In essence, he's saying this initiation from this phase of old age to the twilight age is fucking bullshit. And I'm willing to like make you all see the bullshit and make you think there was some crazy devilry when it was just my magic ring I've had all these years. Right. To the real initiation, which is accept that you are at the end of your life. It is okay. You can let it go. You don't have to like it, but once you accept it, you'll live happily ever after till the end of your days. And passes then, the now, the real story, the true adventure begins when Frodo then takes possession of the ring. And now it is Frodo's job to conquer and face this same Am I going to be young forever? Am I going to be powerful forever? And of course, Gandalf is there. But I love that little microcosm in the beginning to really highlight without Gandalf, it doesn't happen. Absolutely. And there is a sense of, I I really appreciate that uh, analysis of it. There's a sense of Gandalf being the one to provide both the tough love and telling you you have to let go of your youth and also being someone who comforts you on the way there and tells you that it's going to be okay once you crush that, cross that threshold, you're going to be okay on your own. And he doesn't let him get away with bullshit. And doesn't yep. let him get away with bullshit. You've hugged yeah, the me, tough love you've is agreed there. with it. And, uh, but by the way, you know, Bilbo, that ring is still in your pocket. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I actually do have to leave it. And we get this sort of uh, rhyming pair of scenes with him and uh, Bilbo helping Bilbo across one doorstep, uh, out the door and into the rest, the end, the twilight years of his life. And then... Uh, helping Frodo in and helping Frodo to begin to bear the burden of the ring or what will represent many things along the journey. But in this moment, based on your analysis, represents the trials and tribulations of adulthood, represents the responsibilities of adulthood as he's moving forward into a new phase of his life uh, and independence. Frodo can ill afford to just be a happy and carefree hobbit because he has a burden Placed to him unjustly that he didn't ask for, but it's to carry power and evil around his neck. And Gandalf is the one that has to initiate him into this by giving him the knowledge. This is what the ring is. You and all of Hobbington are in danger and you now need to come on a journey to ultimately face this evil and defeat it finally. And Gandalf is the one that is initiating both 
Bilbo to acceptance of giving yeah. up the ring to Frodo to his acceptance of I now need to confront the sins of the past and finally do something about it. Yes, absolutely. So what I'm getting at here is that there is a a sort of angelic quality about Gandalf in these scenes and his role, I think, in in the Fellowship of the Ring. Expand um, on, on, on the adjective angelic. Angelic in the sense that he uh, plays the role of somewhat the angel of death for Bilbo uh, and also as a sort of guardian angel to Frodo. Interesting. Um, as... <sighs> as someone who uh, is there to help guide them to the next phase. So I totally get that reading. May I butt up a little? Yeah, please. And, and I don't think I'm you're wrong. I'm going to expand a little bit more, but go on. No, I don't think that you're wrong. I think when you put it in terms of angels, uh, you put it in terms yeah, of it's definitely a loaded, extraordinary. loaded term. Well, an extraordinary in, in the particular an angel is from another universe. Yeah. Where my lens is, and, and I don't think you're wrong, because in many ways, Gandalf is literally an angel yeah. in the mythology yeah. of, of Lord of the Rings. So in many ways, you're, you're right about that. I look at the archetype that I am at as very human. Okay, great. As very much grounded in human that only humans can do. Yes. That it is a, we need to create the thresholds and initiate those to cross them. And you need a wizard or a wizard archetype to do it for you. Great. Yes. Great. So what I, what I wanted to expand on a little bit and you just hinted at is that in the mythology of Lord of the Rings, the wizards are essentially these pure spirits, these, these pure beings uh, known as the Maiar who are sent with one purpose, which is to assist the peoples of Middle-earth to rise against Sauron. They're sent there in the Third Age to help and unite the peoples. They're almost like angels, but because they've been placed or poured into the bodies of these old men, their powers are restricted, so they're going to be less able to uh, exert their extraordinary powers, and they are susceptible to error and temptation just like any human would be. And so I think this draws us a little bit back to Merlin, on the sense of this ambiguous uh, moral character or spiritual character, they're torn between the realms of good and evil, which we see uh, in the foiling of Gandalf and his shadow, which is Saruman. Uh, Tolkien is very much asking the question of people who have power, what would you do with it if you had it? And Gandalf is a, a figure who is able to listen to uh, you know, for lack of a better word, his better angels and is able to resist temptation, even though he acknowledges it. He's presented with the ring and says, don't tempt me, Frodo, because he doesn't know what he would do if he ever got it. Uh, but Saruman, even though he is a pure being poured into uh, human skin, is unable to resist that temptation and doesn't think there is anything worthwhile in resisting that temptation. So we get an interesting corollary to the sort of ambiguous morals of Merlin there and the being torn between good and evil. I love that. That's really, really cool. So I, I'd like to expand on that too, yeah. because I think one thing that you always see with the magician, if we go with my lens as the initiate and yeah. as the person that helps cross the threshold, who is and what is the archetype that stands against you in trying to cross that threshold and it is the Saruman. Yeah. It is the... It's a trickster. The, yeah, the inverse, the evil wizard that's there that says, you know what? Yeah, you know what? You can't make it. You're not good enough. And I'm going to actually 
throw a mountain down on you if I have to, to stop you from it. Yeah, it's like, what's the opposite of someone who helps you across the threshold? It's literally a gatekeeper. It's someone who keeps you out. Yes, and it's also, I think we can all, hopefully, I don't know, I've had this experience with a a teacher when you're young who you butt heads with. Yeah. That you are just like, you and that teacher are just at battle all fucking day. You're Severus Snape's. Every day, and you're like, you know what? That, That teacher's job is to mentor me, but they're they're holding me down and holding me back, and we They've have got a, some ego thing that's stopping them from doing their you know life's work. Yeah, whatever it is, and you know, in my case, it was probably me because I was a fucking punk. <laughs> but you know, but you still have that 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 relationship based upon you're not actually helping me, you're hurting me. We are working against each other. Yeah. Versus the the mentor that helps you get there, and that creates the saruman. I think that's an interesting way to think of. So if we think of Gandalf as the more angelicized virgin, version of the, the archetype, the yeah. most pure, the one that will always do the right thing no matter what, and we think of Merlin as a combination of both these forces at different ends who can do both good and do bad all at the same time, because let's face it, like Merlin helped the I mean, Duke, yeah, Merlin, helped, uh, Merlin there, helped rape. Yeah. He helped to rape. So he, he has... Uther, you know, look like through a glamour charm, the Duke of Cornwall, and then Uther rapes the wife. Yeah. That's not cool. It's not cute at all. It's Even horrible. back in the Dark Ages, you didn't want to like glamour yourself up and sleep with someone under false pretenses. Right. Even then, that wasn't cool. Yeah. And I think we can look at Dumbledore mm-hmm. as the human representation who represents in those extremes, who is... Gandalf is is potentially flawed, but really fucking perfect. Yeah. Dumbledore is uniquely flawed as a character. Yeah. He actually hurts people. And even though his job is to protect, maintain, and help an institution of magical education and learning, he can't help make it all about him sometimes. Yeah. He can't help, you know... If we let this weird and evil play play out, students might die, but I'll get a little step closer to Voldemort, so that's okay. Yeah, there's a really interesting evolution of the uh, moral ambiguity of Merlin here. And some interesting things to point out as we sort of transition into talking about Dumbledore within this uh, sort of thematic line of inquiry is that in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, Merlin is part of the overall mythology. It's taken as a given that Merlin was a real person who wizard one. lived. He was like one of the earliest wizards. Yeah, yeah he was uh, wizard one. Yeah, well, he went to Hogwarts, according to Pottermore, even though that's a little bit of an anachronism because Hogwarts was created in the 10th century and we're led to believe that Merlin was a 5th or 6th century bard. Uh, I also found out, unfortunately, Merlin was sorted into House Slytherin as I was researching this podcast, but nobody's perfect. Um, but even within the world of the books of Harry Potter, people will exclaim Merlin's beard whenever something uh, outrageous happened. Or um, great wizards or accomplished wizards will often be inducted into the Order of Merlin. And there's some other references to the Arthurian legend being sort of real or believable within the story. Not the least of which is the fact that Albus Dumbledore's middle name, named after his father, is Percival. So we have a lot of references to the Arthurian legend there. And I also like to call out that both Merlin in standard um, 
you know, iconography and artistic renditions, Gandalf and Dumbledore are all depicted in long robes, sometimes with pointy hats, usually with a staff, really long beards. And they represent this sort of like ancient Druid or, you know, characteristic. Yeah. The way that they are, are actually visually portrayed is similar in all three mediums so that there's the idea of Merlin, which informs the visual yeah. look of Gandalf, which informs the visual look of Dumbledore. Yeah, an interesting just a, a sidebar here is that I uh, heard a few scholars of the Arthurian legend and British literature talking about uh, Merlin and the evolution of the character and just offhandedly say, well, yeah, then you've got Tolkien and Gandalf is, of course, Merlin by another name. But he didn't want to invite these sort of Celtic comparisons because he was working on an Anglo-Saxon narrative. So there is definitely an acknowledgement of the fact that these are archetypically visually similar and thematically similar. Absolutely. And it shows that, you know, everything happens with under, under the umbrella of the Merlin. Absolutely. So let's talk some Dumbledore. Let's talk some let's, Dumbledore. Let's dive into it. Where would you like to begin? So I started this by saying we have an evolution of the ambiguity. And it's not until the later installments of the Harry Potter series that we start to really understand the ambiguity of the character of Dumbledore. Because for the first six books uh, and movies, this guy is nothing more than an admired and beloved mentor for Harry Potter, who is absolutely a King Arthur figure. He pulls a sword from a hat. Um, This is someone who is so unimpeachable in character through those first installments or the, and even the later installments that to even consider that Dumbledore uh, could have made a wrong decision in his background is really jarring to us as readers as we're uh, first encountering it. And it's jarring to Harry as well. You think that's up until book six? Up until book seven. I So for me, Goblet of Fire was the first time I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you, Dumbledore? Sure, which I that get. That was for me. For me, I didn't actually begin to start judging his actions that way until J.K. Rowling told me to start judging his actions that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there is an interesting... Uh, viewing of him through the lens of the hero who uh, he is being, uh, who he is mentoring that I think puts us all in these sort of rose tinted goggles, although apparently not you. Well, yeah. I mean, Goblet of Fire, he is absolutely atrocious. I mean, he is begged to put an end to the Triwizard Tournament and not let these children compete in a tournament true. that we know is somehow linked to dark magic and probably Voldemort and kills people every year. And he just lets this happen resulting in one child's a child's death Yeah, that he is directly responsible for that. He could have put an end to the tournament and been like, no, there's some dark magic on this, but rather let the tournament play out so he could figure out who did this dark magic and maybe I could catch them and what a hero I would be. I mean, that was when I was first like, wait, Dumbledore? Yeah. Like that's horrible. So, but you're pinpointing something really important, which is that uh, over time we begin to recognize the ego of this character. And we did another episode about mentor figures in the Harry Potter series at large, where we focus primarily on Remus Lupin, uh, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time with Dumbledore and with the idea of like what happens when we realize that the people who are 
uh, leading us, who are helping us into adulthood, are fully fleshed out human beings with their own stakes and motivations and are flawed and have egos. And so there is something interesting that Rowling is doing with playing with that magician archetype and also saying, well, yeah, but he desires things too. We can't forget that they desire things of their own, which is primarily missing from Gandalf, not to say there's anything wrong with the creation of that character, but he has sort of a divine purpose that propels him through the entire story. And for Dumbledore, there's a personal purpose. There's a personal stake that propels him through the entire story. So there's an evolution of the archetype of the magician there. Yeah, I think Dumbledore checks a lot of the main boxes. One, he looks like Merlin and Gandalf. Two, he has power and knowledge that the other characters don't have that they need to come to him. Three, he's literally a schoolmaster in charge of the threshold that gets people from their youth to their adulthood. Yeah. Um, you know, he is absolutely a mentor to the main hero, Harry, and is helping him and supporting him along the way. So he checks all of these main boxes, but what we get with Dumbledore is exactly what you said. We get a more human and purely human character. We get someone who makes mistakes, who is absolutely in the wrong, who lives in moral ambiguity, who sometimes lies to the cops. We get a character that is very complex and that you can really judge and judge harshly based upon his actions. Dumbledore is a character who is not just, you know, conforming to the archetype of helping Harry get from point A to point B. Dumbledore is playing his own game of chess against dark wizards yeah. in which to him, Harry is a piece to the puzzle, right? That he needs to move on the board in order to defeat the dark wizards. Ultimately his aims are good. He wants to defeat the dark wizards, but it's not just there to make sure that the hero gets to where they need to be. As we learn in the uh, Deathly Hallows that the entirety of Harry's existence, Dumbledore knew he'd have to die in order for Voldemort to die. He was looking at him, as Severus Snape says, like leading a lamb or pig to, to slaughter. slaughter. Yeah, And you've kept him alive to die at the right time. He's treated Harry, yes, as a, men as a mentee, Yes, as a someone with great power that he wanted to help along the way, but also as a pawn. Yeah, it, it, it can't be ignored. Uh, there's a wonderful quote from the book we mentioned before, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, where they say, quote, their secret knowledge, of course, gives the magician an enormous amount of power. And because he has knowledge of the dynamics of energy flows and patterns in nature in human individuals and societies and among the gods, the deep unconscious forces, he is a master at containing and channeling power, end quote. So if we look at the sort of chess game that Dumbledore has been playing, we can see the fact that he leaves uh, riddles behind for Harry and his friends to figure out in order to defeat Voldemort. We can see that he is constantly aware of what choices people are going to make in the future. He engineers his own death based on his assumptions about what the Dark Lord will do. He engineers the uh, destruction of the Dark Lord based on his assumptions about what Harry would do when faced with self-sacrifice. He is someone who carries with him such a deep understanding of those unconscious forces that are deep within all of us 
that he pretty much contains the power of prophecy. And as we see as the owner of the pensive, where he can jump into people's memories, he owns the power of history. So he actualizes this Merlin-esque quality of being able to understand everything that has happened in the past, the patterns there, and understand by that nature everything that has happened in the future uh, just from the sort of projections of his own mind. I think that's a fascinating way to evolve that sense of history and prophecy. And I would submit that there is morally as much Gandalf in Dumbledore as there is Saruman. Sure. Okay. Okay. That he okay. exists in both of those extremes. That there is a reason that he has uh, the so-named Dumbledore army. Yeah. The reason is, is that Dumbledore aspires, inspires allegiance and can mobilize mass groups of people and can use them for good, but can fuck up and use them for evil. Yeah. He is susceptible to temptation. He holds the Elder Wand. What's the primary difference between Harry Potter and Dumbledore when it comes to the Elder Wand? Dumbledore keeps it, and because he keeps it, because he wants power for himself, it ultimately falls into Voldemort's hands. Harry recognizes the power as inherently dangerous and terrible and destroys it so no one else could ever wield it again. Even though knowing Harry would use it justly, just as we are knowing Dumbledore would use it justly. The very fact that it exists means it can be exploited because no one should have that much power. Yeah, uh, and think about why Dumbledore dies in the first place. It's because he's been cursed by wanting the Resurrection Stone, one of the Deathly Hallows, for himself, and it caused this uh, curse to spread through him over the course of a year. So there is this sense of uh, him being the Gandalf who couldn't resist taking the ring, you know, he's the... Saruman. Yeah, he's Saruman. He's the one who uh, said, oh, don't tempt me, Frodo, but oh, go ahead and tempt me, Frodo. Don't uh, tempt me, Frodo, but look over there. I actually want to inspect this a little further. Yeah. And yeah, I'm going to put it on, right? That's and, okay. And I don't want to be too harsh on Dumbledore here, too, because... This is not to indict or condemn Dumbledore. No. But rather to celebrate the complexity and the evolution of yeah. the archetype in that narrative. And because at the end of the day, this is a character who recognizes that he was not the better of the two men between him and Harry Potter. He's the one who recognizes, as all great magician archetypes do, that the passage of uh, of the threshold, the passage of the burden from one generation to another is an important rite of initiation, not just for individuals, but for societies. It, the archetype of the magician uh, is someone who says, I'm going to help you along the way because you can go further than all of us. To call upon another magician archetype, Yoda, we are what they grow beyond. Uh, the master gives the student knowledge so that they can go further, so that they can stand on the shoulders of giants. So I appreciate that there is an acknowledgement within uh, all of these characters that there will be someone who gets to step further along the path than they ever did, and they get some kind of pleasure out of helping them take the first step. And by virtue of them doing that, that step the magician can help rejuvenate them by accepting where they are in life. Absolutely. They can help make that person more whole, more complete, more rested, more ready to face the challenges and the complexities of what it means to be a sentient conscious being in a chaotic and bizarre universe. Yeah. Yeah. 
I um I want to call out before we uh, wrap up. I want to call out the fact that. Of course, we've been talking about these three characters who exemplify this archetype of the magician, which is inherently a gendered concept. The wizard is inherently a gendered term, uh, usually referring to men or males. Um, And I want to talk just for a moment about the relationship to women in these stories as we track the evolution of the magician archetype, Um, starting with Merlin, who is, of course, a figure from the Dark Ages and the High Middle Ages is where he gained his popularity. And the end of his story is usually him falling in love and being tricked by a woman who imprisons him in some kind of oak tree or cave. The downfall of this figure is that he trusted a woman. So there's not a super healthy relationship to women in this character. And we, of course, also mentioned that he assisted in uh, in a rape on the behalf of Uther Pendragon. Not a healthy relationship to women, as we would probably expect from a medieval story. As we move on to Gandalf, we have a character whose shadow figures are not Morgan Le Fay or Vivian or the Lady of the Lake, but are figures that look like dark reflections of themselves, other men who have uh, succumbed to temptation. We have another figure who's sort of a foil for Gandalf in Galadriel, who is an extremely powerful woman who is inspiring to Gandalf, whose name uh, he is able to invoke in moments of sadness and fear, who he praises, who he thinks is a great and divine figure. He does not have a relationship to women where he sees them as tricksters or as femme fatales or as people who will be your downfall. Then we move on to Dumbledore, who sees an equal in Minerva McGonagall. We have a magician figure who has a woman as his right-hand woman. Uh, And his shadows are Grindelwald, Voldemort, and even ministers of magic. We also know, of course, if you've ever been on Twitter, that Dumbledore is gay. Dumbledore was gay. And so we have an evolution of the relationship to sexuality and sex and women's sexuality, I think, in these stories not to break open too much of a rabbit hole there, but I just wanted to throw a little bit of appreciation on that as we follow this archetype through to modernity. I appreciate that tremendously, and thank you for calling that out. I think that is an important thing to be mindful of and to be uh, considerate of. And, um, you know, Merlin and the character of Merlin coming from a era and a time that is fiercely patriarchal and unapologetically anti-women. Right. It, it's refreshing to see in particular in JK Rowling, a more nuanced and advanced and more socially conscious and more feminist version. It's also important to note that Tolkien's one of the best warriors in Tolkien is the best character from the entire saga. I am no man. Aon. You know, so my girl. Tolkien definitely had some respect for women yeah. in his narrative. And it's an important thing to be mindful of when discussing in particular fantasy. Yeah. It doesn't just belong to us straight white boys. Yeah. You know, and it never has just belonged to us, in fact. And it's enhanced and it's better when it doesn't. But understanding why, why is it in particular in the ancient Athorian legend, why is it so 
unruly and horribly sexist. Well, you have a codification and a creation of a patriarch system that then look backwards to find myths to justify why it's okay. If you are a high middle-aged knight who just went around raping a bunch of women who you're also supposed to be protecting, it gives you comfort to say, I've worked out these repressed sexual desires that link with violence and conquest. And it's okay because Uther did it. And it happened back then too. So I'm really just, I'm just like Uther. Oh, God. It's a reason that these things, yeah. you did open up the can of worms. Yeah, so I'm good, let's go there. But that's what it is. It's rape culture. And rape culture has been around since culture has been around. A long time. And it's yeah. one of the reasons that it's just like, Oh, Uther didn't rape Egrain, you know? It's like, no, hold on, he fucking did. He absolutely did. And it didn't matter that King Arthur was what came of that. Right. You know, like, that's not okay. And from our current modern lens, I think it's important to draw those distinctions. I think it's important to call them out. And I'm really happy that you did that. Real quick, of the three wizards we talked about tonight, who do you think would win in a fight? So that is not actually, I think, a valid line of inquiry. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> so uh, Gandalf is a warrior. Right. Gandalf has sworn to never use magic against other non-magical creatures. So when Gandalf will fight other non-magical creatures, he will use a sword and a shield like everyone else. And, and armies. He will rally armies. And he'll rally armies. Um, Dumbledore has unprecedented magical abilities In the world of Harry Potter, if you are a wizard on Dumbledore's level, you're like two steps away from being a god. Yeah, pretty much. That can just manifest whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And then conversely, Merlin is not a warrior. Merlin as a character is an advisor, is a prophet, is someone that can do incantations, but what Merlin does most successfully is help establish a functioning and stable kingdom. I think pitting them into battles betrays the point of what makes them all interesting. I am totally fine with that answer. In other words, Gandalf wins. In other words, Dumbledore wins, which, uh, well... I guess we'll have to take this offline or potentially into a boomerangarang. Absolutely. I, one last thing before we cut off for the e, the yeah. evening or whenever you're listening to this, dear listeners. This is our 100th episode. Thank you. Thank you for going along with us. Thank you for being part of this journey. We do this for you. We have the best podcast listeners in the oh entirety yeah. of podcasts. We love you so very much. Let us know what you want to hear next. There's so many more episodes that we have planned. There's so many more things that we want to do. And by the way, guys, if you buy some merch, it'll give us a little more funds so that we can do more cool shit. Yeah. Um, Agreed. I agree with everything you just said. Leave us a rating or a review if you feel so inclined. Buy some merch. Check out our our information on the website. Hit us up on social media, all of it. Um, What I've taken away from this episode the most a final thought from me about wizards and the archetype of the magician is respect that times change and new generations will come. Don't be a gatekeeper. Be a threshold bearer. Help people across and let them grow beyond you. And until next time, guys, be kind. Thou shall not pass. Pass.